I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part nine in the series, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. There are times when something once frowned upon is suddenly reinterpreted by a kind of collective social consciousness. It becomes no longer immoral, but acceptable, even justified. In just a few years, a clear moral paradigm can shift radically, redefined by desire. This is what the authors of the New Testament are talking about when they mention the world. In this series, the world is the third of the three great enemies of the soul. In uh, June of 1999, Sean Parker founded the pioneering file sharing program called Napster. Uh, yeah, really? Already th- enthusiasm for Napster? Uh, for those of you who were not actively using the internet in the late 90s, Napster was the first means by which users could freely share digital files, uh, namely music MP3s, with a few clicks and usually a really long wait, depending on your internet speed. But there was a problem. No one was paying for anything. The Napster client was a free download, and as long as someone uploaded a file to that server, anyone could download it with no strings attached, until Metallica found out. After discovering that their entire catalog of music was available free of charge, Metallica filed a lawsuit against Napster in the year 2000, and the program was shut down by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals the following year. Now, Metallica won the lawsuit, but lost big time in the court of public opinion because amidst all of that was a very lengthy public brawl, not between Metallica and Napster per se, but between Metallica and the general public. Public outcry painted Metallica as entitled and greedy. They're a very successful act, desperately grappling for any penny snatched from their already bulging bank accounts. So Metallica was made the butt of an ongoing pop culture joke, denounced by their fans, mocked by the best cartoons that Flash Animation had to offer on the internet. Here's one of them. You can't actually hear said cartoon, but in it. it, uh, You know, like 24 to 48 hours writing and recording. Our team of lawyers and researchers have your names, and we're going to hunt you dead. (laughs) There was that kind of thing. So horrified by the spectacle, other concerned artists also worrying about their livelihood just kept quiet. They didn't want to end up in a flash animation cartoon like this one. Then at the 2000 MTV Video Music Awards, Sean Fanning, Fanning, who co-founded Napster, appeared to present an award wearing a Metallica t-shirt. Now when, uh, what's this gentleman's name? Uh, His, uh, to his, on the other side? Carson Daly, right, sorry. I actually know who, I'm totally relevant. I know who he is. Um, When Carson Daly asked uh, Fanning about the t-shirt, he replied, and I quote, a friend shared it with me. And this elicited uproarious applause from the audience and the visible disdain of Metallica, who was in attendance at the awards. The world, it seemed, had already chosen sides. Metallica were the villains. Napster were the enterprising, courageous heroes in it for the underdog. And yet, all along throughout that story, and to this day, Metallica's argument was a simple one. It's wrong and illegal to steal things. And there was absolutely no debate about whether or not this was stealing. It was, both in the legal and in the moral sense. And Metallica Metallica simply asked that it stop because stealing is bad. (laughs) 
But it, it felt as though the entire world had decided differently, a kind of collective social agreement to rewrite what was once a widely held moral standard. And what replaced it persisted for many, many years. With the advent of like, streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music, peer-to-peer -peer clients, like, as they were called, like Napster, have mostly become relics of the past, but until recent memory, Illegally downloading music and movies and TV series was as ordinary as using email or social media. And I'm sure many of you can probably remember ordinary conversations at work or school or even at church in which two or more people would casually mention sharing iTunes purchases or downloading torrents or pirating movies that were still in theaters at the time. And again, there was never any debate as to whether or not what was happening was stealing or, or whether or not it was illegal. It was inarguably both. But the cultural agreement was that it was not only no longer immoral, but acceptable and even justified to steal. And though we all knew it was wrong, it became normalized and ordinary and just fine with everyone. And some of you are perhaps a few years too young to grasp the big deal of it all, but imagine a world where the internet itself was not readily accessible to everyone unless you had a local library within reach. So there were no digital songs at all. There were no streaming services. There weren't even iPods at the time. So if you wanted music, you drove to a store and then you used anywhere from 15 to $20 to buy said music, often with little more to go on than like the single on the radio or the recommendation of a friend or even just cool album art. Well, that looks all right. I'll give that a shot. So. If you're a music fan without a lot of money, in particular a teenager growing up in the 80s or 90s, you have to choose wisely. And then imagine someone comes along out of nowhere and says, or we can just download that whole album right here on my dial-up internet for free. Give me three hours and it'll be yours. <laughs> I'll burn you a CD. Uh, again, it will only take an extra hour and I will write Metallica on it with a Sharpie, and you can put it in your CD book right next to the other CDs that you actually paid for. No repercussions whatsoever, no accountability of any kind. It was honestly a really difficult offer to decline. Um, I was, at the time, already working vocationally as a musician, so I kind of had a dog, and it's easy to say, like, man, I was morally upright, but I just had a vested interest in people not stealing music. So it was a little easier for me to say, man, this is beat, let's not do this. And they're like, well, of course you would say that. And uh, it was almost always met with universal disdain. People would say, man, who the heck do you think you are? The near universal paradigm had become that stealing was no longer immoral, it was actually good, and that condemning stealing was bad. In just a few years, a clear moral paradigm shifted radically, redefined entirely by desire. If we want to steal, then it's good and right to steal. If we don't want to be judged for stealing, then it's bad and inexcusable to be judged for stealing. And the moral cultural contract was rewritten just like that. This is one example of what the authors of the New Testament are talking about when they mention the world. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15 the Gospel of John chapter 15. For weeks now, we've been in this ongoing series and a set of practices designed to inform and equip us in the fight against what spiritual formation writers call the three great enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, 
and the devil. Now, if you're just joining us or you happen to walk in this evening, please, if you feel like it, go back, spend some time catching up on the previous eight. Yes, there's eight of them so far, teachings. We've been talking at length about the supernatural realm, about the devil, about that broken dimension of our own personhood and our own desires um, that want what is evil rather than good, what the New Testament writers call the flesh. And tonight, we begin the conclusion of the series with our first teaching about the world. And on that note, let's read from John's Gospel, chapter 15, beginning with verse 18. You guys all right? Yeah. Feeling good? You ready? Okay, great. Well, either way, here we go. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus says, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So here it is, Jesus, the master, describing this concept of the world to his apprentices. And this concept is developed by Jesus as a major theme throughout his teaching. Good grief. I mean, if you read just a small passage, Jesus uses the term the world a whole lot, more than a dozen times across the span of a couple of paragraphs, if you keep reading in that section. Now, sometimes when I'm listening to like a, a public speaker or a pastor, uh, I track their idiosyncrasies, uh, you know, not on purpose at all. And uh, like I count how many times they say, um, or, you know, or like, or if I'm at church, I count how many times I hear press in. Um, don't do that to me, by the way. Uh, but this is not a tick. Jesus isn't just saying the world for no good reason. It's with very deliberate measure that he uses the word, and the author who recorded them did it mindfully. The major theme of Jesus' teaching, the world, doesn't vanish after Jesus is executed and resurrected, meaning it wasn't exclusive to him. The New Testament authors after Jesus carry the motif forward and actually develop it further. Here's one example. Turn to the right in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. If you're not using the app, feel free to consult the table of contents. No shame in that, Levi. He's not looking at the table of contents, by the way. It sounded like that by what I just said, but he's not. He's, he's a seminary student, so he doesn't need the table of contents, right? Did you take a uh, table of contents yet? It's a good class. <laughs> really, barely passed table of contents. <laughs> 1 John chapter 2. Let's read beginning in verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the word world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they may too tr be truly sanctified. Oh, am I reading to you guys from a different passage than I? Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. How about this, How about this one instead? <laughs> this is what happens when you uh, edit teachings for time's sake. Yeah, to after I went on about the table of contents. Okay, edit this. Patrick, make a note. Edit this out of the podcast. We can't be embarrassed by all this. But anyway... You heard me read it, right, even though you were shuffling back and forth on the paper, like, what the heck, this isn't what's here. My translation is way different than his. Um, okay, listen to this. 
this is actually what I wanted you guys to read from. Uh, it's 1 John um, chapter 2, verse 15. Does that begin with do not love the world? There we are. Okay, sorry, sorry. All that stricken from the podcast in perpetuity. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, remember that for later, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now again, we'll come back to that lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life thing a bit later. Um, for now, let's talk about what Jesus, John, and the writers of the New Testament actually mean when they say the world. Years ago, I was having a conversation, whoa, this thing's really close. Years ago, I was having a conversation with a woman uh, who was a good bit older than I am, and we were talking about music. And at some point in the conversation, she mentioned that the Rolling Stones were her favorite band. Before she quickly amended her, con her comment, like it was a bad thing to have said, she says, at, at least they were, she corrected herself, when I was in the world. And I remember thinking, how strange. When you were in the world, where are you now? What does that mean? But actually, uh, this woman's paradigm for the world had been the same one that I was raised with myself, meaning the world is any area of culture or art or entertainment or behavior that the Christian bubble finds icky. That is the world. Movies, radio stations, trick-or-treating, public schools, slang, cartoons, parties in general, sex in general, the Rolling Stones apparently. And people who participate in these icky things are worldly. But is that what Jesus means when he says the world? In Greek, the word is actually cosmos, where we get the English word cosmos. I'm sure you could guess, but not unlike uh, many English homonyms like ball or check or bear, cosmos has more than one meaning. In the New Testament, the word can mean planet Earth, <laughs> as in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, cosmos. It can also mean humanity in general, as in John 3.16, for God so loved, what? The world. But when Jesus talks about the world in our text tonight, he actually means something else. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga, in his book on sin, defines that use thusly. A culture the pattern of beliefs, social forms, dispositions, and values that are institutionalized in a people's collective life. Dallas Willard calls it this, our, our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. In his book, Why Liberalism Failed, Professor Patrick Deenan writes this. Hold on, it's a big one, but you'll be all right. In this world, gratitude to the past and obligations to the future are replaced by nearly universal pursuit of immediate gratification. Culture, rather than imparting the wisdom and experience of the past so as to cultivate virtues of self-restraint and civility, becomes synonymous with hedonic titillation, visceral crudeness, and distraction, all oriented toward promoting consumption, appetite, and detachment. As a result, superficially self-maximizing, socially destructive behaviors begin to dominate society. Now, all that to say, in this series, we might define that concept of the world like this. It is a system of ideas, values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized in a given culture. This system is organized around the twin sins of rebellion against God 
and the redefinition of good and evil. Now, many of us read a definition like that one, and we can't help but consider like the modern world. Oh, that sounds familiar. Um, but really, this concept of the world is as old as the Garden of Eden. All the way back in the beginning of the series, if you can remember that far back, we did some work with that strange story of the talking snake, the garden, Adam and Eve. And taking that story as paradigmatic of temptation in general, we can see that the devil's approach to temptation is threefold. The first is to seize autonomy and power from God. The second is to separate yourself from God's presence or secularize yourself. And finally, redefine good and evil based on the desires of the heart. So, in the Bible, the world is what happens when that same sin of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, wow, Adam and Eve, <laughs> sorry, well, sounds really sexist, but it was actually just a slip of the tongue. Forgive me. Man, I'm on a roll. Patrick, strike it from the podcast. <laughs> Uh, when that same sin of Adam and Eve spreads throughout a society and then becomes normalized. Now, perhaps by this point you're beginning to sense how terribly old-fashioned all of this can begin to sound when you're using concepts like sinful society and the world and normalized evil, really. And this is because, I would argue, in the progressive secular world of the West, in particular the Northwest that we, in which you and I live, we don't use God as any sort of shared moral compass as a society. Um, Yuval Noah Harari, who authored a book called Sapiens and who is not a follower of Jesus at all, offered a really interesting insight on the subject. He put it like this. In earlier times, it was God who could define goodness, righteousness, and beauty. Today, those answers lie within us. Our feelings give meaning to our private lives, but also our social and political processes. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The customer is always right. The voter knows best. If it feels good, do it. Think for yourself. These are some of the main humanist credos. So hence, the radical redefinition of good and evil over even just the last few decades, wherein the idea that flakiness has been redefined as free-spiritedness or immaturity has been redefined as adventurous, lust has been redefined as love. Abortion has been redefined as female empowerment. Divorce has been redefined as an act of courage. Denouncing faith as liberation. Greed as free market capitalism. Injustice as globalism. Racism and sexism are now political values. Yelling on social media is social justice. In his book on liberal Christianity, Theo Hobson notes that what was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate are now condemned. And this is what our culture, culture calls progress. Now, as a caveat, sometimes it actually can be. There are benefits to how fashionable justice is at the moment. Sometimes it actually works to the advantage of the world. Um, when we're becoming increasingly aware of things like systematic uh, racism and sexism and bringing, finding new ways to bring those things to an end, that's actually good. That is progress. But much of this progress, I would argue, is what the New Testament writers call the world. And it is fundamentally set against the way of Jesus. 
And again, to broach this topic today is nearly impossible to do without inviting accusations of Puritanism and hyper-conservatism and fundamentalism. And if you know me at all, it's probably obvious I, I'm not those things, at least I hope I'm not. But I do believe that the central pull to the world is as strong as it's ever been, if not more so. And there are certainly a plethora of examples to draw from. That list that I read moments ago is only a short example. So tonight, let me work through two broad areas where the world creeps into the church in particular in order to colonize it and make it over in the world's image. Those two things are hiding in the crowd and DIY faith. And here's a brief word on both. Now, hiding in the crowd, I would argue, refers to those areas of moral dilemma in which we willfully persist because it's easy to do so. When you know full well that buying that outfit or that pair of shoes contributes to slavery and abuse elsewhere in the world, but hey, you want those shoes and everyone else does it. Or when you've learned that the food that you eat contributes to poverty or violates and destroys God's creation, but the local stuff costs more and really everyone does it, what's the big deal? Or when part of you knows deep down that you've got a problem, you cannot put your phone down, you can't go extended periods without checking it, but really who isn't on their phone all the time? What's the big deal? Or when you know that you're perpetuating a false veneer of your life on Instagram and being passive-aggressive on Facebook or being snarky on Twitter, whatever it is, but isn't that just the way everyone uses those things? Or you know that you spend all your money on yourself, you buy things that you don't need that won't make you happy without sacrificing for others or for the church, but who would ever know, really? What difference does it make? Everyone you know spends their money that way. And as long as there's this big, safe crowd to hide in, you refuse to allow the way of Jesus to permeate those areas of your life. Now, DIY faith, on the other hand, may be the greatest, most dangerous threat to American Christianity at this moment. DIY faith is when once, go, once church-going Christians, uh, often raised in the church or who operated in particularly conservative traditions, decide that they're going to rise above the archaic paradigms in which they once operated. So they make up their own Christianity. They nix everything they don't like. They adapt certain elements to better suit their preferences. They throw in their political beliefs, their identity politics, their a progressive sex ethic, a radical sense of individualism. They essentially abandoned the historic orthodox way of Jesus in favor of a fluid, subjective DIY faith of their own design. And all of it through a hyper-consumerist approach of, if I don't like it, throw it out. If it asks something of me that I don't want to give, then it must not be true. Do away with it. And then somehow still call it the way of Jesus. David Tackle puts it this way, an alarming number of Christians are very prone to viewing their faith as largely a volunteer enterprise. They pick and choose which values they wish to adopt from Scripture and which they will adopt from the dominant culture. This synchronistic approach of faith is only possible because of the unexamined assumption that we are in charge of our doctrine, dogma, and morals rather than God. Much of its appeal lies in its ability to blend in with the surrounding culture, minimize our discomfort, and still hold to the illusion of being Christian-like in one's behavior. 
And this may feel more prevalent than ever before, but actually it's not new, not by a long shot. Just read through the Bible. In both the Old and New Testaments, one of the prominent recurring struggles of God's people is syncretism, the attempted amalgamation of different religions and moral schools of thought in such a way that it compromises the spiritual and ethical uniqueness of the people of God. And in our fight against the three great enemies of the soul, the devil, the flesh, the world, it's our responsibility as apprentices of Jesus to actually examine our lives and ask the question, where have I been compromised and what do I do about it? Where have I conceded, yeah, but everyone does it? Where have I created a more comfortable and accommodating false Jesus of my own design? Where have I entertained a redefinition of good and evil? Where have I allowed the voice of the world to overpower the voice of God's Spirit? Because these are really difficult questions to answer. We began this series by arguing that the devil's objective is to kill and destroy, and the primary means by which he does this is through lies. And we put it this way, the devil's strategy is to use deceitful ideas that pander to our brokenness and that have become normalized in a broken society. And the feedback loop of lies from the world back to the individual is especially tricky because they often play to what you want to hear. In other words, they appeal to your flesh. If for hundreds of years the church has been in absolute uniform agreement as to the sexual ethics of the way of Jesus, but then someone comes along with a seemingly thoughtful way to tell you what you want to be true over and against those things, sold. If you read for yourself in the scriptures, hear the voice of the Spirit, but you really want to keep shopping or eating or talking or behaving a certain way, and everyone else is doing it, sold. And human beings will go to extravagant lengths to avoid guilt and accountability. We become masters of justifying our own behavior. And I know this from personal experience. And when that behavior is normalized, the fight becomes even more difficult. Because it's one thing to lapse into like a moral failure, failure like an affair or be caught in embezzlement or something like that. Things that still are largely frowned upon by the general public. But what about when that moral failure is celebrated? or when it gets you likes, or when it gets you better outfits, or more money, or more pseudo-affirmation, or an easier, more comfortable life in the short term. We all stand in a circle affirming one another's broken behavior, a feedback loop of the flesh, all of us telling one another what we want to be true, what we want to hear, directly with our words or indirectly with our actions. And when and if someone actually lifts a shaking hand to say, wait, this doesn't seem right, then we will do anything to silence them or to excuse them away. The person who actually fights against digital addiction is out of touch or unrealistic. Or the one who spends money differently is a radical extremist. Or the one who eats differently is a bleeding heart hippie. Or the one with a Jesus-centric sex ethic is a Puritan or even a bigot. Or the one fighting lust is actually sheltered and weak-minded. And all of this plays into the world's redefinition of freedom as the ability to do whatever the heck you want, and it simply is not true. In the scriptures, this idea of sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. 
Meaning, I don't forget, forbid my kids to go walking in traffic because I run a boot camp and their disobedience violates my glory. I forbid my kids from walking in traffic because if they do, they will die. And we often squirm at that kind of understanding of sin, but this is exactly how the scriptures describe it, death. And we read last week, those who sow to the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And it's actually quite easy to identify the ways in which you've not been corrupted and colonized by the world. So someone from a progressive culture, part of the country like ours, can sit back and say, wow, man, a lot of American Christians have bought into like political idolatry and militarism and racism and sexism. Not me. That's pretty awesome. But have we been duped by a progressive sex ethic or by materialism or by radical individualism or by flakiness and commitment phobia? All of it is the world. And what's most dangerous about it, not the areas that you can locate with ease and say, that's not me, but the ones that trick you. So to end tonight, let's revisit that idea we briefly broached back in John chapter 2, this idea, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, listen, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. These are the three temptations listed. The first is the lust of the flesh. Now, don't think of sexual desire only. The author means any desire for self-gratification. That could be sex, but it could also be food or drink or domination, power over other people, more material things, and so on. Next is the lust of the eyes, meaning wanting something that appears to be good for some purpose or for personal pleasure. And finally, the pride of life. By that, he means autonomy. Don't tell me what to do. Hashtag do what makes you happy. The Instagram Diet Coke philosophy of life. And notice the way that John is drawing the reader's attention backward in time all the way to the garden. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The lust of the flesh, it was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasing to the eye. The pride of life, it was desirable for gaining wisdom and autonomy from God. It's the same old story. The story of the human condition. And these three temptations are at the core of all temptation. And you need to understand that the world around you, in this culture, this city, this time, this place, these things have not only been normalized, they are being celebrated. And your enemy in this fight is not a person, but the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, The idea is that this week, when you gather with your Van City communities or with a couple of friends, you'll head to practicingtheway.org slash fighting and continue in the practices. We realize that you're all in full holiday swing at the moment, so don't worry if you're behind or if your community is going to miss a couple of weeks. There's time and space to catch up in the weeks ahead. There's actually two practices up for the weeks ahead over the holidays. The first is a review of silence and solitude, which is a practice we did quite a while ago now. And this is about how to use it in your fight against the three enemies of the soul. And the second is something called an idea audit, which is, I think, well worth your time over the holidays. Not terribly time-consuming, but well worth your time. It's just doing a bit of work to identify certain patterns of thinking about yourself that have crept into your heart by way of the mind. It's all on practicingtheway.org. But to end this evening, I want to remind you guys of 
one ancient spiritual discipline that is foundational to the way of Jesus, instrumental in your fight against the three enemies of the soul, and that's exactly what you're all doing right now, church. And I realize it may be a challenge to hear someone like me go on about the value of church without it sounding like an advertisement. You know, I do work here. But I want you guys to know, honestly, that I, like many of you, if not most of you, have had anything but an uncomplicated relationship with church. I have loved and I have hated the church. I have been present and I have been holy and purposefully absent from the church. I have been an advocate and I have been a critic of the church. And honestly, I didn't become someone who works at a church and teaches from the Bible because my experience with church has always been amazing. I didn't do it because it's in my family. It's not at all. I didn't do it because it's all I've ever known. It's actually relatively new to me in the recent years of my life. But I became a pastor because I have come to believe along the way of a tiring, troublesome, and beautiful journey that we cannot follow Jesus without this a space to connect and to reconnect, to look down these rows of seats and remember, that's right, we're still here. We haven't given up. We're doing this together. Yes, we're messed up and we're broken and we're suffering and we're celebrating all concurrently, but here we are. For more than 2,000 years all over the world, here we are. And together, we turn our attention to Jesus and to communion with him and to the scriptures, and to the spirit and voice of God. And we remember, right, yes, this is the truth. Over and against the frenetic storm of lies swirling around us every day, right, that's the truth, that's a lie. And I don't care if this sounds antiquated or conservative or fundamentalist, I honestly believe this is very, very true. When one wanes in their participation in church, they often also wane in their fight against the world the flesh, and the devil. And I believe that theologically, and I've seen it experientially my, in my own life and in the lives of so many around me. And it doesn't matter the reason that one wanes in their participation of church. It could be just outright sin and rebellion, or it could be, you know, a season of life, new job, new baby, a ball game, sunny day, whatever it might be. And yes, we all know that there are completely good and reasonable reasons to miss church from time to time. There's not black and white legalism, but what I want you to see is that when you give yourself a kind of permission to devalue or dismiss yourself from this sacred space, it becomes easier for the world to overshadow you and for the flesh to warp you and for the enemy to lead you away with lies. Um, Earlier this week, my wife Abby and I were sitting on our couch one evening and talking about the way that so many people we know, not just at Van City, but just peers of ours over the last few years and the culture of the church at the moment, they kind of show up when they feel like it or if their kids aren't too tired or if something else isn't going on when there's not something better happening for them that night or if they happen to remember once or twice a month, whatever it might be. And we were so bummed that so many treat what has been sacred to disciples of Jesus for hundreds and hundreds of years the same way they treat a TV show or a buffet. It's optional. It's here for my consumption if I want it. It's good, but it's ultimately secondary. And this week I read a story about Dwight L. Moody uh, in this book, Invitation to a Journey, and the story goes that one night Moody was home with a friend and the two were drawn into a debate about the value of the Sunday church gathering. 
Moody was an advocate for Sunday church, and this Christian friend of his did not agree that church was crucial for the disciple of Jesus. So as the story goes, so the story goes, this person sat arguing against Sunday church, and Moody, rather than reply, simply reached into the fireplace with an iron poker, and he drew out a single glowing coal. And as this man argued on, claiming his lack of need for the church, that coal dimmed and eventually went cold and dark. And an awkward silence passed between the two of them before the man sighed and said, Mr. Moody, you've made your point. Without the fire, the coal goes dark. But alternately, the coal can return to the fire and burn bright once again. And don't miss both dimensions of that metaphor. Yes, Moody's point was that without the fire, the coal goes dark. But he's also right in that in the fire, the coal burns as bright as it possibly can. When you return to this sacred space, to this fire, and you fill your mind with the scriptures, and you link arms with other disciples of Jesus, with other men and women, and even kids, in our case, hundreds of kids, who are all on the same journey at various intervals and season of life. And when you continue to show up and to pray for one another and to take communion and to listen to God's Spirit, whether there's an emotional experience waiting for you or not, or whether it's your favorite band or not, or whether you've got something else going on or not, or whether you've grown tired of this guy's Christmas sweater or not, you actually show up and you look around and you remember, right, here we are. This is the truth. That's a lie. Here we are. Now, I don't know where you're at with all this. You know, in Jesus' prayer, you'll notice that he never asks for the Father to take his disciples out of the world. In fact, if you recall, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us the light of the what? The world. You are not to withdraw from the world. You are not to hold yourself up in hiding, afraid of the brokenness out there, the ickiness of the world, the rolling stones, whatever it might be. Instead, may your fire burn bright and may it be a light that drives back the darkness of the world. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.